This episode contains subject matter that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 16. This week's show has so much information that we're going to forego all the announcements and we're just going to get right to the story. So get ready. Here it comes. This is the story of the brutal kidnapping and murder of Maria Ridolf. Maria Ridolf was seven years old on the night of December 3, 1956. She was the youngest of four children, which included Patricia, 16, Kay, 15, and Charles, 11. Her parents were Francis and Michael. They lived in the small town of Sycamore, Illinois, on an idyllic street with many other families just like the Riddolfs. On that evening, eight-year-old Kathy Sigmund knocked on the door of the Riddolf family, wanting to know where her friend Maria was. You see, Kathy and Maria had been outside at the corner of their block, playing in the snow. Kathy had briefly run over to her house to put on some mittens, and when she returned, Maria was gone. Maria's brother Charles told Kathy that Maria was still outside somewhere. So Kathy turned around and went back out, looking around some more for her friend. After a few minutes, she became worried, as there was no trace of Maria. So she went back to the Ridolf home and told them she thought Maria was lost. Charles told Mrs. Ridolf, who directed him to go outside and look for his sister. He and his friend, who had been visiting the home, walked around the block. Charles recalled later that it took him 15 minutes before they returned. Meanwhile, Mr. and Mrs. Ridolf began to look for Maria themselves. They checked their own backyard, then they walked to the corner calling for her. By this time, Kathy had gotten her older brother Edward to help look. After Mr. and Mrs. Ridolf walked around for a while calling for Maria with no luck, they went back home and Mrs. Ridolf called Kathy's mother, Mrs. Sigmund, wondering if she had seen Maria. Mrs. Sigmund told her that she had not seen Maria and that both of her children were back home not having seen her either. The Ridolfs continued searching the neighborhood with flashlights and after a while, Miss Ridolf went back inside and called the Sigmund home again. It was at that point she was told that Kathy and Maria had been playing with a man before Kathy went inside to find her mittens. And when Kathy had returned to the area, that was when she found Maria and the man were gone. The Ridolfs began driving around the neighborhood. At around 7.30 p.m., Frances called Mrs. Sigmund again, and she asked more questions about this man that Mrs. Sigmund had mentioned before. Fear was starting to set in. Prior to this point in time, Mr. Ridolph had been reluctant to call police, thinking that perhaps Maria had just been playing a prank or had wandered off. Wouldn't that be embarrassing if it turned out to be nothing? But now it was different. A man had approached the girls and had been giving Maria a piggyback ride? 
Mrs. Ridolph drove to the police station and reported her daughter missing. So how did all this happen? We're gonna get into a timeline, but just so you know, this timeline has been hotly debated because some people say the timeline provided by the Ridolphs to the FBI is correct, even though not precise, and others say they can't be counted on to know exactly what time everything happened. Um, and a lot of other people gave varying timelines as well. We're gonna use what we think is the most accurate information, and then we're gonna provide links to where we're getting this information from, in case you're interested in checking it all out. You'll be able to go to our website, caseacquaint.com. So here we go. That evening was not particularly unusual. The family finished dinner at approximately 5.30. By then it was well past dark since sunset that night was at 4.24 p.m. Maria had already gotten permission from Frances, her mom, to play outside with Kathy after dark. Maria wasn't usually one to play in the snow or in the dark but both of the girls had been excited about a small amount of snow falling, and Frances made an exception telling Maria to wear an older coat so she wouldn't get her new coat dirty. Not a thought was given to whether or not it might be safe to play a couple hours past dark in that town of 6,000 people on their idyllic little street. Frances drove her daughter Kay to a six o'clock music lesson, and when she returned, she saw Maria and Kathy playing on the corner as expected. Now, now we need to get into what Kathy says. A man approached the two girls and introduced himself as Johnny. He said he was 24 years old. He offered to give the two girls a ride in his car or even just a piggyback ride. Maria took a piggyback ride, but Kathy didn't want one. When the man asked the girls if they liked dolls, they said yes. He said they should go home and get a doll. Maria went to get her doll, and Kathy stayed with the man. When Maria got back, Kathy said that her hands started getting cold, and she decided to run home to get some mittens. When she got back, Maria and the man were gone. That is the story as presented by Kathy over 50 years later, and it really hasn't changed since 1957. Two neighbors recalled hearing a scream. Investigators were not able to establish if that was a scream from fear or from playing, as Kathy also allowed that they were screaming as they played in the snow. Kathy's mother had told her on that night to remember Johnny's face, because she would need to be very sure of it later on. This, Kathy says, she took very seriously. She would describe the man, Johnny, as being tall, skinny, blonde, and pale. He had a gap in his two front upper teeth. He wore a blue, green, and yellow sweater. Years later, Kathy described it as having flecks of those different colors. And that timeline we were talking about, the one that seems to be most precise to us was that of Tom Brady, a merchant oil dealer who was delivering oil to the Cliff family home, which was positioned on the same corner at which the girls were playing. Tom, being on schedule and watching the clock closely, had left the Cliff home at 6.15, where he had seen the girls playing together with no strange man nearby. He received a call at 7.10 p.m. from Mrs. Cliff to ask what he had seen, and after that call, he had joined the search for Maria. 
So this person's timeline for us seems to be the most precise. The girls were alone at 6.15. The neighborhood was in a panic by 7.10. Once Tom Brady meets up with some other men, they see a set of footprints, adult size. He compared them to his own shoe and felt that they would have been a size nine men's. And the footprints led to the garage right next door to the cliff house. Then there was a wide step as if picking something up or getting ready to throw something. They thought for sure the abductor was still there, so they rushed around to each side of the garage, but to no avail. They searched around and picked up the trail again as it led over to Fair Street, and at the edge of that street, finally, to some fresh tire tracks in the snow, headed out north on Fair Street. Now, once Maria's parents, Francis and Michael Ridolph, notified police of the possible abduction, the authorities sprang into action, searching all night in cornfields, vacant buildings, and along the many streams and rivers cutting through the area. Curiously, the area at which the girls were playing, a corner lot, that area had been searched several times by 8.15 p.m., and four adults stated that they had looked there with high-powered flashlights. An hour and a half later, the doll was found in the driveway, easily seen by anyone. This was approximately 300 feet from where the abduction was assumed to have taken place, where the girls had originally been playing. Authorities reacted immediately by releasing a statement. We're appealing to the person who placed the Ridolph doll at the point where it was found near the Ida Johnson garage Tuesday night to identify himself to the state's attorney's office immediately. This is vital to the preparation of evidence in the prosecution of the case. Nobody came forward. Eventually, authorities decided that someone in the neighborhood found the doll in their yard and took it to the driveway, believing Maria had been playing with it there. But she had not been playing with it there. They had been playing in that area, but not there. Authorities chalked it up to a neighbor who found the doll in their yard and decided they didn't want to be involved. The next day, thousands of community volunteers and law enforcement officers searched the entire town and surrounding areas. The local high school dismissed the students for the day so they could participate in the search for Maria. Even fellow employees of Mr. Ridolph's from the Diamond Wire and Cable Company helped search. Fifty FBI agents were initially assigned to the case. They swarmed over the area. They questioned known sex offenders and former inmates of a delinquent school for boys in four counties surrounding Sycamore. They interviewed neighbors, filling station attendants, and other merchants. They searched everybody's automobile trunks in the desperate hope that Maria had hidden herself in one, since she'd done that once before as a prank. Sixty square miles were searched with eight planes, including six from the Civil Air Patrol. At the end of the day, police said they would review the items that were turned in to them by volunteers, including a napkin, a long-stemmed glass, and a man's shirt. The shirt was found three-quarters of a mile from the scene on a bridge. All three items appeared to have bloodstains. County, state, and FBI officers established roadblocks the following Tuesday, with nothing of note found. Mrs. Ridolph made an announcement through the United Press, 
She said, If the person who kidnapped her is listening, it couldn't have been done in malice. It was a little mistake. God forgives mistakes. We would too. Michael Ridolph started to get choked up and took out a handkerchief. She went on to say in an appeal to her seven-year-old daughter, Don't cry, Maria. Above all, don't cry. Don't make a fuss. We will be with you soon. Deputy Sheriff R.C. Anderson also spoke to the media. He said, The guess is we'll find her body out there somewhere in the fields or woods. There's no other explanation. Meanwhile, Kathy Sigmund was escorted everywhere she went. She was giving a seemingly endless amount of pictures to look at, but unfortunately, she couldn't identify anyone as the Johnny she had seen that night. Towards the end of December, Kathy was taken to a police station to look at many pictures. According to reports, she finally picked out one person, but that person had an alibi because he was, in fact, in jail at the time of the abduction. So now we're going to get to the suspects. Both the local authorities and the FBI went house to house over the next several days, interviewing everyone, establishing the whereabouts the night of December 3rd of every person who lived nearby and asking them if there were any people in the local area who they felt had exhibited similar behavior to Johnny or that they suspected may have been capable of kidnapping Maria. When they were asked, the Long family had information for the FBI. It had to do with their child, Pam Long. She and her parents said that Johnny Tessier, who lived in the neighborhood, had offered to give her a piggyback ride once and that she got on his shoulders but, but immediately wanted to get down. Tessier would not put her down, and she started to cry. When her dad saw this, he came rushing over, and he jerked her off of Johnny's shoulders and said, Don't you ever go near my daughter again, so help me. Now, this guy has had several names over the years. He was born John Cherry. Then his mother married a guy by the name of Tessier. So John Cherry grew up calling himself John or Johnny Tessier. Then, in the 1990s, Johnny Tessier decided to have his name legally changed to Jack McCullough. For the sake of this case, since he was known as Tessier at the time of the crime, we're going to call him Johnny Tessier. If you're interested in researching this case, you'll need to use John Tessier and Jack McCullough as search terms. And if you ever speak to the man in person, you're probably going to want to call him Jack McCullough. Anyway, John Tessier's mother told authorities when questioned that Johnny was at home most of the evening, that her husband picked Johnny up in Rockford after receiving a collect call from him. Now, part of that statement was true. A collect call was placed from Rockford to the Tessier home at 6.57 p.m. that night. There's no proof, however, of who made the call, although it's believed that it can be assumed it was Johnny Tessier. The rest of the statement was a total lie. Even John Tessier states that it was a lie and that she was lying because she was scared he would be found out to have not been home. He says when he came home the next day, she was crying. He said, she was probably just scared for me. She thought I needed protection. He now admits that his mom lied. His contention to the police 
was that he didn't know how he got home. He maintained that he couldn't remember anything except that he was in Chicago that day. At the time, military recruiters had verified that he had been in Rockford at some point that evening. The Sycamore police questioned over 60 people. We're only going to talk about the ones that, that had numerous newspaper articles written about them. There's a guy named Coroydon Thomas, 29 years old. He had been arrested and charged with molesting three boys in Elgin, Illinois. He denied the charges, and nothing more happened relating to him and this case. There's also uh, Deliano Glenn Green, a 21-year-old man with a criminal history of molesting small boys. He was questioned but cleared. He went on to be accused of raping a 14-year-old girl in Chicago. There was Dwayne Anderson. He fit the description, and he was acting strangely, according to police. When officers approached him, he ran, so they questioned him thoroughly, giving him two lie detector tests before setting him free. There's another guy named Donald Arbuckle. He was 34 years old. Now, on December 11th, he was found in his car on an abandoned military reservation. Also in the car was a little nine-year-old girl who was sleeping in the back seat. A subsequent search of his room in Rockford revealed pictures of nude children. Arbuckle, who admitted to raping the child, had been allowed by her parents to take her for rides. He had a criminal history of similar offenses. However, he turned out to be too old and looked nothing like Johnny. On Saturday, December 21st, in Madison, a 10-year-old girl was snatched as she was walking home from school, and she was thrown into the trunk of a car. After the car was caught in traffic gridlock, which everyone who has been to Madison in the last 50 years can easily imagine, the girl was able to open the trunk of the car, jump out, and run away. The description of the man was similar to that of Johnny, only difference being that he was wearing a red and white warm-up jacket with the letter N on the front, and he was driving a 1956 Ford convertible. Now, another guy named John Hilburn, he was a 28-year-old factory worker, and he resembled the description of Johnny that Kathy had given. He provided inconsistent stories of his whereabouts on the night of Maria's abduction. He was also getting ready to serve a prison sentence of two to seven years for molesting his five-year-old daughter. Finally, he refused to take a polygraph test. Now, in the 90s, they announced they'd found the real killer, and it was in all the papers. Unfortunately, Kathy didn't recognize that person, and Maria's family doubted this as well because the guy was just too old at the time to have been Johnny. Not that he wasn't a predator, because he was. Maria's mom, Frances, told the press, every time the postman comes to the door, every time the telephone rings, you think it might be something about Maria. Maria's body was found Saturday, April 27, 1958, near Woodbine, Illinois. That's 75 miles northwest of Sycamore. Frank Sitar and his wife from Hopkins, Minnesota, 
were in the area hunting mushrooms and came upon the body. The body was found hidden beneath an old downed tree trunk. It wasn't buried or covered up with anything. It was just placed there. Maria's mother and father identified a lock of hair and a shirt that Maria had been wearing at the time of her kidnapping, unbuttoned but still on the body. The body was missing Maria's underclothing, her shoes, coat, and hat. Let's get back to Tessier since the case ultimately began to center around him. In December of 1957, he was 18 years old. He'd been kicked out of school for attacking a female teacher, so he never made it past the 10th grade there. After being questioned by the FBI, he entered the U.S. Air Force. He left town 11 days after Maria disappeared. He was discharged from the Air Force, and then he joined the Army, making a career out of the military. When he was discharged from the Army, he was living in Washington State. When he was 40 years old, he began to work for the Milton, Washington Police Department. But soon, he had some underage runaways living with him, and he was accused of sexually assaulting one of them, a 15-year-old girl. So after working there just a year or less, he was fired. Also, he was able to plead down his charges from statutory rape to communication with a minor for immoral purposes. And for that, he was sentenced to one year, which was suspended, and a $350 fine. Tessier then decided that his new calling was to become a photographer, and he felt his specialty would be nudes, specifically nude women. There's no evidence that he ever was able to make a living at it, despite how much he may have enjoyed his work. It's been reported that previous wives have stories about him being strange sexually. John's half-sister began to try to contact authorities to tell them about her brother and that his own family believed he was the person who took Maria. Her name was Janet. She and another sister, Mary Pat, claimed that they were both in the room with their mother on their mother's deathbed when their mother said, those two little girls and the one who disappeared, you have to tell someone he did it. Janet says she had noticed her mom had been tormented for years. Another sister, Jean, also began to make public statements about her struggle healing from sexual abuse and straight-up rape by both her father and her brother, Johnny. Jean wasn't the only sister who gave testimony to that effect, but she actually published a memoir about it called Unspoken Truth. It describes in detail some of the most graphic and disgusting abuse I've ever read about. She also details the night Maria was kidnapped from her perspective as a child. The way she remembered it, her dad didn't go to pick up John. Her dad didn't go... The way she remembered it, her dad didn't go pick Johnny up from Rockford because he was pressed into service with the rest of the neighborhood, and especially so because he had to unlock the hardware store he worked at so everybody could get flashlights. He was gone all night with the other men, searching. Anyway, Jean had a lot of healing to do, but Janet, 
who is one of the people her mom begged to tell someone, began to contact authorities after mom died in January of 1994. Still, the case was not reopened for 14 more years, when she was finally successful in getting the Illinois State Police to listen to what she had to say. In 2011, Maria's body was exhumed for another autopsy. The second autopsy revealed that Maria's body had suffered stab wounds and cuts inconsistent with lab cutting tools. One of the cuts would have been consistent with plunging a knife into her throat and then downward with enough force to cut the thoracic vertebrae and the sternum. It was determined that at least three such stabs occurred. Unfortunately, they weren't able to recover any fingerprints or any DNA besides Maria's. John Tessier was questioned for several hours, and while he was dodgy with his answers, while he came off as incredibly creepy, and while he blatantly lied during these interviews, he maintained his innocence. That he never wavered from. He even implicated a mysterious figure by the name of Brooks. Still, he was charged with the kidnapping and slaying of Maria. This arrest was based in part on that deathbed statement by Tessier's mother and the positive ID of Kathy Sigmund. Kathy was, for the first time, provided with a picture of John Tessier. They'd never done that back in 57. They used high school yearbook pictures for all the other subjects, but because there is no high school yearbook picture of Tessier, they used one provided by a woman who was his girlfriend at the time. Tessier's supporters claim that using that picture and yearbook pictures for the other subjects was unfair because his was slightly different in that he wasn't dressed the same exact way and it didn't have the same background. They couldn't very well Photoshop his picture to look like theirs, so the validity of that argument can be debated. Three other inmates who were also incarcerated with Tessier after his arrest ended up testifying against him in court. One of those guys was Kirk Swaggerty, who wrote a letter offering information about him. He also offered information about another inmate. He wanted to make a deal with prosecutors. Swaggerty was not provided with the rewards he expected and subsequently filed a lawsuit against his own attorney, a former DeKalb County Assistant State Attorney, a former State Attorney, and the State's Attorney's Office. Swaggerty's contention in the lawsuit was that he was approached by a State's Attorney, Clay Campbell, who asked him to discuss his knowledge of the Ridolf case and another homicide case. Swaggerty's lawsuit was for damages totaling $3 million dollars but it was dismissed on October 4, 2016. It's been reported that every sibling of John Tessier believes in the guilt of their brother. Three of his sisters testified against him. They agreed that Tessier had not come home at all that night and his whereabouts were never explained. Actually, there were many witnesses who testified against Johnny Tessier, most sure of his guilt. But the problem was that there wasn't any physical evidence linking him to the murder, no DNA, no weapon, no fingerprints. The only eyewitness was an eight-year-old girl who was now identifying him over 50 years later. As we mentioned earlier, 
the timeline is not exact by any means. John Tessier, a.k.a. Jack McCullough, was convicted in 2012 and sentenced to life in prison. So what was the impact of all this to Maria's family? Well, we'll probably never know exactly how traumatic this has been for any of them. I'm sure very few of us could even imagine the feelings that must have plagued them for years and that maybe continue to. They went this entire time not knowing who it was, but being assured that aside from the slim possibility of it being a truck driver, the FBI and all the local and state law enforcement agencies were pretty positive it was a local person who committed this crime against Maria. So some of these people lived the rest of their lives wondering, who could it have been? What person out of this town, out of 6,000 people, my friends, could have done this to my daughter, my little sister? Maria's brother Charles, who was only 11 years old when Maria was killed, wrote a fascinating book about his spiritual journey as it relates to this tragedy in his and his family's life. It's called The Impact. In it, he talks about after years of trying to put the past behind him, finally healing from the fear and anger caused by whoever did this to Maria. And it was all brought back to him again in the form of somebody letting him know that they had finally, once and for all, found Maria's killer. As quoted from Ridolph's book, The Impact. On June 30th, 2011, when I was told that John Tessier had killed my sister Maria, I gasped. Someone I knew had killed Maria. Everything changed. It changed for the worse. Several people have commented that it's too bad my parents were not alive to see this day. But they just don't understand. It's horrible reliving such a thing. In fact, it's worse than reliving. Something new is unfolding nearly every day. Things I just don't want to know, and yet I just can't stop thinking about. I'm so thankful that my parents were not alive to go through this. I'm so thankful that my parents are with Maria, far above and beyond all of this, in heaven, in the arms of our Lord and Savior. One thing to mention, though, is that this book was published after Tessier had been convicted of murdering Maria. Now, in March of 2016, the DeKalb County State's Attorney received an anonymous letter naming a possible suspect who was not Jack McCullough, a.k.a. John Tessier. Evidence was brought forth by the then state's attorney, Richard Schmack. He produced phone records from the time that showed the collect call had been placed from Rockford to McCullough's home in Sycamore at what he considered to be the exact time of the slaying, which, according to Schmack, meant there was no possible way Tessier could have committed the crime. The court agreed and Tessier was freed, and he then received a certificate of innocence. This made it possible for him to sue, and his lawsuit originally included 15 defendants in both Illinois and Washington. He has since settled with some of the defendants, but the lawsuit continues to this day. He has supporters in his current wife and her family. His son-in-law created a blog where he has linked a ton of information about the entire case, even some from the FBI reports. Lots of great information there. You can find a link to that website if you head over to our website, caseacquaint.com, or just visit their site, jackmccullough.wordpress.com. 
As usual, you'll be able to find many links on the post associated with this episode. It's important to note that John Tessier, a.k.a. John Cherry, a.k.a. Jack McCullough, has been declared innocent. So this is now an unsolved, brutal abduction and murder of a child. I think there's very little hope that it will ever be solved, but that doesn't mean they should stop investigating. It's a tragedy for almost everyone involved. The one person who seems to be the luckiest is the person who killed Maria. For people like the Ridolfs, however, earthly justice is just that. In The Impact, Charles writes about earthly pain. He says, The pain which I felt was unbearable. Our minds were filled with questions, questions which seemed to overpower us. It seemed as though that is all we could handle at the time was questions, unanswered questions. We had forgotten. We had allowed the unknown to overshadow the known. We were letting our minds wander away from the only absolute, the certainty that God loves us, and more importantly, that God loves Maria. For those of you who are interested in finding out how Jean Tessier healed from her trauma and how Charles Ridolph healed from his, I would urge you to check out their writings. We all deal with crisis, injustice, and the evil the world can bring into our lives. At varying levels, we all encounter these things. That's an unfortunate reality of living. That these people have been able to go on to try to find happiness, hope, and maybe most importantly, love, is nothing less than a miracle. Now, Jean Tessier has recently passed away and we wish her loved ones peace, as we do the Ridolfs, and we continue to hope for a world in which nobody is ever preyed upon by another human being in any way. Until then, we'll keep bringing you these stories and bringing you the ways in which these amazing people are able to cope with the tragedies brought down upon them by other human beings. What do you think about this case? Do you think our friend, who will no doubt soon be coming into large sums of money, is an innocent man and deserving of all that cash? Have you been able to identify someone else who you believe may have been responsible, either dead or alive? We were interested in several of these guys, like John Hilburn, for example. One thing is clear, even in the 50s, you had lots of child predators, and sexual abuse was much more widespread than anyone would have liked to admit. Looking through old newspapers never ceases to amaze us. What are your thoughts on how this case was handled by the police, by the media, and by the community of Sycamore? Don't forget to head over to our website, caseacquaint.com, for links and more information. And also, don't forget to share this episode if you found it interesting. If you have a case you think we should cover, feel free to contact us through any of our social media or YouTube, whatever. I want to thank you for listening. We will talk again soon.